Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Because we're here to know God and make Him known. And that's our goal every week, to grow in our relationship with Him and to invite others into relationship with Him. And so we're doing that as we look into His Word and and trying to read the letter of Revelation in such a way that we experience it as it was meant to be experienced. It's not supposed to be this scary, far away, read the news, cry at night kind of experience. It is meant to be a blessing for us. And so that's why this series, Blessed, is uh, the subtitle is Revelation the Right Way. And Revelation has been misused by people all throughout history. And we want to read it as it was intended by the God who gave it to us. And so uh, verse Three of chapter one gives us this metric for understanding it that as we read it aloud, as we hear it, and we obey it, we will experience the blessing that God intended for us in this letter. And if you remember that word blessing, it's about fullness, it's about joy, it's about life, it's not about oh kind of thing. It is it is about really getting something meaningful and tangible that will help us to be undergirded in our faith as we read. And so I want you today, the challenge, and it's going to be this way for weeks and months to come, is as we read it, hear what it says, and when there is a call to obedience, obey, because this letter is meant to be a blessing for us as the church. So today we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. Hopefully we'll get through them all. Uh, much like last time where I had to divide the sermon into two, and it would have been a four-hour sermon had I not, um, this one is going to have some challenges too. There's so much beautiful, meaty content here in Revelation. Now, I, I would say that Will Bland challenged me this morning, said if I can preach two full hours, that I'll get some overtime pay this week. So I, I told him, challenge accepted, and so buckle up. Uh, if you need to use the restroom, do so quite. No, I'm kidding. We'll still be trying to wrap up within my normal hour and a half. Um, okay, that's a little bit of a stretch too, isn't it? Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Let's read through it first together, and then we will look at it verse by verse and try and pull it apart to get the blessing out of it as we read, hear, and obey. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Translation. Remember that the Bible is originally written in different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and all of our Bibles, no matter what translation we have, were originally taken from those languages and put into English. So there's some differences, but they're all based on the same original text. And so this Christian Standard Translation reads this way. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, as we read this, I know that everybody goes, oh, I get it, right? Everybody goes, oh, this is so clear. Thank you, God, for the clarity of your scripture. And as we go through this, you're actually going to be able to say, yes, it is clear. And yes, I do get it. Because as we get these pictures and these, these, um, vis- this vision of Jesus and who he is, it'll increasingly become clear as we get the right lens through which to see it. The right set of glasses, if you will, to look at it with. So here in chapter 1, verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Christ Jesus. Let's look at that first little bit. Uh, as, as we begin, that, that John is writing to us and he acknowledges a couple of things that he is our brother in Christ Jesus. We must understand that even the apostles looked at the Christian faith and they saw inequality amongst all believers. There was no hierarchy, no, no greater than or less than. Now, God has established certain roles to be fulfilled according to calling and ability within the church. But there is no hierarchy of saints and sort of saints or on their way to saints. Instead, all of us are brothers and sisters when we are in Christ Jesus. This beautiful, perfect equality before the throne of God when we are in Christ. And he says he's our partner. Not only is he, whoa, not only is he our brother, He's also our partner. He's walking alongside of us. So I'm going to get excited and it it probably, I'm going to yell once or twice. And so, yeah, okay. I just felt loud. Um, And and if I'm not, then just go, hey, it's good. But if I hurt your ears, then let me know so I can talk softer. But, But John, he is our brother and partner in this faith in Christ Jesus. But there are some things that he says he is alongside us in that we don't normally associate with the Christian faith. In modern American Christianity, we follow Jesus so that we can be blessed. We follow Jesus so that we can be prosperous. We follow Jesus so that we can be saved, ultimately, don't we? And here's what John says about walking together in Christ. So he says, he is our brother and partner in the affliction that is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that just... Man, that cheers your soul, doesn't it? Doesn't that lift you? No, we go, what, affliction? Yes, brothers and sisters. You must understand 
that when we trust Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, it is not this day in which everything becomes perfect and rosy. Our salvation is sure when we are in Christ Jesus. Our brotherhood, our sisterhood, it is deep when we are in Christ Jesus. We have partners in this life. But Jesus himself said that this life, if they persecuted me, if they judged me, if they condemned me, why would you expect any less for yourself? And, and so we need to understand, first and foremost, that John says that he is our partner in affliction. And this Christian life, while it is one of great blessing, it's also one of affliction. Other ways that this word from the original language could be translated into English could be tribulation and persecution. Oh, how exciting, right? Yeah, actually, to be judged worthy of being persecuted and afflicted for the sake of our Savior should be something we appreciate and look forward to and understand it's part of faithful Christian living. Now, this is so significant because if you remember, John is writing this letter to churches who it's possible are giving their life for the sake of the gospel. They are losing their jobs for the sake of the gospel. They are being cast out of society for the sake of the gospel. And so when he writes this, he's not talking about a hypothetical. He is talking about the reality of the Christian life. And what we should expect. But he also gives us an encouragement. Next he says he's our brother and our partner in the kingdom of God. We are not citizens here. We do not belong to this place. We belong to the kingdom of God. And it is, it is realized in our lives as we participate in the church. And in this brotherhood and sisterhood. In this fellowship. And ultimately the kingdom of God will fully come to pass. And we'll get to see the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and live forever in the light of our Savior where there's no more tears, no more brokenness, no more sin or suffering. And so this kingdom holds for us the promise of protection today, belonging today, and full redemption in the days to come. And because of that, we understand we might be afflicted and yet we're part of a kingdom we can endure whatever comes. John is saying, look, life is difficult, but we have a destination that's sure. And because of that, we can keep on keeping on in this Christian faith. So our brother and partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. Now, John can speak of these things from personal experience. It says this, he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What we understand to be true from church history, from those who recorded what happened to John, both here and outside of the Bible, is that John underwent a number of instances of being jailed, arrested, persecuted, And here, exiled for the sake of the Christian faith. He held fast to the word of God and his testimony about who Jesus is and will forevermore be. And because of that, he was on this little tiny island called Patmos and exiled there for the sake of his Christian faith. It was was essentially a prison circumstance that he's in. 
He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so when he says, I am right alongside you in affliction and persecution and tribulation, he's not sitting up on some high chair, well-fed and cared for, saying, it'll be okay. He's in the trenches with us and saying, I know what it's like to follow Jesus and what it costs. So uh, funny story, John, he's like the perfect southern, like deep south kind of believer. He was deep fried, boiled in oil for the sake of Jesus. And I mean, everybody knows southern people like deep fried stuff. Uh, Perfect persecution for a southerner, right? I mean, man, John has been through so much. And so he understands. And he begins to say this. He says, while on Patmos, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. And this voice said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So here he is on the Lord's day. What day is the Lord's day? Any, anybody know? Sunday. So Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's day. Why do we celebrate on Sundays? Why do we meet on Sundays? Why is it the Lord's day? If you remember that this, uh, this holiday is coming up, it was a Sunday morning in which Jesus arose and the tomb was discovered to be empty. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Lord's day by gathering together and worshiping him as he deserves and encouraging one another as he commands us to. So John says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was deep in worship. He was having a a great service. It's interesting. He was likely by himself in exile, simply enjoying the presence of God. And then he hears a loud voice and it says, I want you to write down what you see. And I want you to send it to these seven churches. And these seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, Sardis, excuse me, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so as we look at these seven churches, they are all in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And it is the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had like a state called Asia within Turkey. And this is what John goes on to describe. He's having a vision. He is seeing these things for himself. And here is what he sees and he hears. Chapter 1, verses 12 and following. He says this, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Now, so far, this sounds pretty good. Pretty easy to understand. Nothing extraordinary about this. We just have some lampstands. We have a person and they're dressed really nice. And then it, this is what John says he sees. The hair of his head was white as wool. Okay, we can accept that. We look at some of the folks even in our own congregation and it's, 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 it's there, not a problem. And his eye, white as snow and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. All of this still sounds okay as description. This is pretty amazing. Of course, we expect God and the vision of God to be something significant. And then it goes on to say this, his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. And then here's where it goes off the rails. A, a, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. 
So we see this, this vision, this picture of someone that John is experiencing. He's looking at them, and, and a modern artist kind of takes and he, he, he paints the picture to look like this. And, and we can see we've got this person who's shiny and there's flames coming out of their eyes and there's a sword shooting out of their mouth and there's lampstands everywhere. And it, this is not a normal kind of experience that we would have on a Sunday morning, is it? In fact, we might read this and read other places in Revelation and we begin to see these things and wonder, what? Is it, I mean, this is just freakish. This is the kind of stuff that fuels the nightmares that some of us have had regarding Revelation. This is the kind of stuff that makes us read Revelation and go, I don't get it. Because we see these descriptions, these things that John saw, and the only thing we can just say is, what? What is that about? Why is there this person with white hair and glowing eyes and a face that's as bright as the sun and this sword coming out of their mouth and shiny feet. We don't, I don't get it. And it's what creates the fear that we have in Revelation. Because this is actually one of the nicer pictures that John paints, isn't it? Those of you who've walked through Revelation previously, you know that this is one that's like, oh, I, I can sort of get this. I've read the Old Testament. I can see this. And so what we need to do is try to figure out, though, what this kind of thing means. When we're trying to understand Revelation, we need to say, this is what John saw as he communicates to us. But what does John mean? Revelation is is what we call apocalyptic literature. And it actually sets the standard for how we interpret apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, we all know what it is. You know, it's the end times. It's this this type of literature that is talking about the judgment that is going to come from God. But apocalyptic literature is always symbolic. And it's likely that as you, if you were to read some of the apocalyptic literature, that uh, not only Revelation, but others in the uh, first century and earlier, you would see a, a similar kind of circumstance where an angelic being or, or someone with authority or power that's outside of this natural world comes to someone and gives them a message to share. And usually the message is based in extraordinary visions that are deeply symbolic. Now last week we talked about some of the numbers that we see in Revelation. If you remember, there's the number three, which represents the Trinity, God, right? The number four, which represents... You could just yell it out if you know it. Anybody remember? Creation. All of creation. Every time we see four, it's representative of creation. The four creatures around the the throne of God. The four corners, the four winds, the four angels that we're going to see later on. Four is always representative of God. Six, man and sinfulness. Seven, anybody? Seven, perfection and completeness. Ten, completion 12 the people of god right and so we understand in revelation that numbers are symbolic of something that when we read a number that there is likely a deeper meaning to what's being conveyed and here in the visions that paul or john has I almost said paul but the visions that john has he's seeing things and they have a deeper meaning than the simple vision itself 
So how do we know what they mean? Now, what's interesting, we read this whole passage. And so let's just focus on this first thing that it talks about, the lampstands and the stars that are in this person's hand. Verse 20 says this, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what's interesting is in these two symbols in this vision, John gives the interpretation of what they mean. And that's going to happen in Revelation in certain parts. We're going to read something and we're going to go, what? And then John's going to explain to us what it means. But there are going to be other times where we're going to read something and we're going to go, what? And John will not give us the meaning of the vision or the meaning, the deeper meaning of the symbol. And so we're going to have to do some work on our own to understand it. So how will we do that? Well, first, if we're going to understand the vision, we're going to, we're going to start with, is it directly interpreted in the text? So the lampstands and the stars, we know exactly what they represent because he tells us in the text, right? The, the lampstands are symbolic. They represent the churches, the stars represent the angels. Now, there's some discussion as to angels, whether that is the pastors and the leadership of the church, or does every church have like its own guardian angel? And let me tell you, I don't know. It's unclear. The word angel can mean a supernatural being, or it can mean a messenger, a person sent to represent and so uh, when we talk about the angels, all it says is, uh, well, they represent something about the church. So we have the stars and the lampstands representing the churches. So it's clearly interpreted. Now, what if it hadn't been interpreted? And we have other places in this, this vision that we have already that are not interpreted by the text, right? White hair, glowing feet, fiery eyes, a face that shines like the sun, a sword coming out of his mouth. Is this a literal thing or is this a vision that is symbolic? And we're going to say it's, it's clearly, we've already been told that there is deep symbolism in what he's seeing. And so if the text doesn't interpret it, where do we move next to the Old Testament? If you remember, I told you that Revelation has the most references to the Old Testament out of any New Testament book. Scholars, conservative scholars, peg it at around 600 and some references to the Old Testament out of 400 and some verses. Some scholars actually see up to a thousand Old Testament references, direct citations and allusions in Revelation. If you cannot read Revelation and understand it, there is a good possibility that you haven't interacted with the Old Testament much because Revelation is full of Old Testament symbolism. And so some of these things we're going to read in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you here shortly. We're going to see the interpretation for the vision by using an Old Testament reference that tells us what it means. Second thing, or third thing, uh, is there a first century context? Now, some of the stuff we're going to read Specifically, the number 666, 
And we all know that's what the bad people are getting tattooed on their forehead, right? It'll probably be a barcode, maybe a chip, who knows? Or it could refer to Nero, which is actually what some scholars look and say it's a clear numerological reference to Nero, one of the emperors who persecuted Christians. And there was a story that he would rise again one day because Roman emperors were viewed as deity, that he would rise again in order to complete his persecution and destruction. So, so we can see that sometimes in the first century context where John is writing this letter, there's going to be an answer to the vision. The next is, it, listen, is it a metaphor or a simile? Is it numerology? Now, a, a lot of us, we understand what metaphors are, right? One example, one of the commentaries I read gave is, you will say to someone, you eat like a pig. Do you really mean that they walk up to the trough and stick their head in the trough and eat the slop. If you have a friend like that, you need to revisit how you choose friends, right? But, but we all know when you say that they eat like a pig or they are a pig, you do not literally mean they're a pig. You don't mean they have a snout and a curly tail. You mean there is something about them that the picture, the vision of a pig helps you understand the nature of their character. Whether it's they eat real fast, they eat too much, they're a terrible person in relating to others and they behave poorly. We all understand that. And so what we need to understand is here in this type of letter, an apocalyptic letter, there are likely going to be metaphors and similes and numerology that are going to help us understand the vision. And then finally, what, what we maybe, maybe need to understand is that this vision is really just calling us to something to be obedient. It's trying to paint a picture that is so extreme that we can do nothing but say, that's terrible, I need to obey what I'm commanded to do. It's a, a little bit of hyperbole, if you will, in some of the visions. And so while scripture here as we read it, paints a picture that looks like this of a, a God on a throne with a sword out of his mouth and fiery eyes. We can understand that this is symbolic of something more that John wants us to see about who this person is. So as we look again at each of these phrases and we look at the descriptions here. Let's try and understand the vision. So then uh, he says this. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands as one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. So what we have here is a clear description of a number of things. Number one, what, what are the seven golden lampstands? The churches. The seven churches. And seven is the number of perfection or completion. And so seven churches is a perfect representation of all churches. We see in these seven churches everything we need to know about how Christ seeks to relate to all of the churches who have, ex who have existed throughout time. Seven golden lampstands, and there is this person who is walking amongst the lampstands. Now, interesting picture, not standing over the lampstands, not um, at a distance, but rather in the midst of the lampstands. So whoever this person is, they clearly have a deep and personal relationship with the churches. 
They, they are amongst them. And, and then among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Now that word, or that phrase, Son of Man, it's capitalized here in the Christian Standard Bible, maybe in your Bible as well. And we're going to look at it a little bit, but just to answer the question right away, who is this? Who is this? It's Jesus. And we're going to see why here as we go, but let's understand a couple of things about this one who is like a son of man, Jesus, amongst the candlesticks. He's dressed in a white robe or dressed in a robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. This is a picture of priest and king. This son of man who walks among the lampstands is both priest and king for all. And so as we look here, now, now let's, let's find out why this is the case. We, we go back to the Old Testament to begin our, our look at this. This is the, one of the places where we find the phrase son of man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel is having a vision and he says this, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, who is described as the Father, God the Father, previously, and was escorted before him. So Daniel has this vision of this person who arrives on the clouds. He calls him the Son of Man, or like the Son of Man. And this person who arrives on the clouds is brought before God on his throne. And then this person is given a dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so Daniel in the Old Testament has this vision of one who is like a son of man, who appears and he is given all glory and all authority over all of creation. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, this is his favorite way to describe himself in the gospel of Mark is son of man. And Jesus is referring back to that Daniel vision. And John is referring back to Daniel and to Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus said. He's before the, the religious leaders, the leading up to his crucifixion, and they are judging him. And it says this of him. He kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So he, they ask him, are you the Christ, the one who is promised to come? And are you the son of God? And here's his answer. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus adopts for himself this title of Son of Man and says, I am exactly who you are asking me about. I'm the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm the person you saw in Daniel. That's me. And so when we see John use it in Revelation. We know exactly who this is. This is the promised one, the ruler, the authority whom Jesus said he was. And so we see in this vision, this is Jesus, one like a son of man. Daniel has another vision and it's talking about Someone he sees and he looks up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. Daniel has this supernatural vision of a, a messenger who comes from God. 
and he's dressed in a white robe and a golden sash. The very same picture we see with this person in Revelation. And so we, we, we clearly understand that this is Jesus, the Son of God, who represents the Father, who is dressed just like we would expect someone who is a messenger of God to be dressed. Now it says his hair and his head, it's all white. White as wool, white as snow. Daniel 7, 9. Earlier, before chapter, uh, we, we read about the Son of Man. He, he, Daniel has a vision and he sees the Ancient of Days. And here's how he describes the Ancient of Days. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. When John sees Jesus in his vision, he's got bright white hair like wool, like snow. It says he's the same person as Daniel saw here, the ancient of days, the same God. Jesus is God. This is the declaration of this vision is that the same God you were looking for in the Old Testament, I'm here now, the Son of Man, white hair, perfect purity. Then we see his eyes, his feet, his voice, his face are all here in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, describing the ancient of days. And this messenger sent by God, his body was like beryl, his face was like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Every time there is this supernatural experience by prophets and they see God, it's always in these same terms face that's shining, eyes that are like fire, body like bronze that's been polished and fired and gleaming, and a voice that's just like cascading waters, or it's like a multitude. Some of us, we've seen some of those movies. I I think it was the Prince of Egypt that actually used a number of different voices for for God in the burning bush. And so you actually hear, you hear uh, the, the, the main voice and then you hear a woman's voice and you hear other men's voices and you just, you hear all these voices together representing the voice of God. And it's this, it's, it's a biblical picture of a, a, a God who in, is just beyond all of us and yet loves us all and, and is connected to all of us. And when we hear his voice, it sounds like not just one person speaking, but multitudes of people speaking with such power and authority. So, so we, we see uh, his, his voice, his face, all of this is, is Old Testament. Ezekiel 43, 2, when we talk about his voice sounding like cascading waters, says this, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. Ezekiel in a vision. And, and it says his voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent. The voice of God is like like water rushing down out of the mountains, like the voice of millions of people together in such power and authority. Can you, can you see how this vision that John tells us about, it's not just what he sees, it's that in seeing what he sees, he is declaring and sharing with us that the same God of the Old Testament is right here before him, and it's Jesus And he is the king. And he is the ruler. And he is the one who gets to speak with authority. 
Now we also see his face shining. Matthew 17, 2 tells us about the transfiguration of Jesus. And many of us are familiar with this, that Jesus and three of the disciples, they go up on a mountain and, and Jesus is transfigured right there in front of them. In other words, they, it's more than just his body that they see for the first time. They see the very glory of God shining through his flesh. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Even, even in their experience of Jesus here on earth, three of the disciples, and guess who was there amongst those three? John, the very one who writes this letter of Revelation. Not only does he have this Old Testament description that when he sees this vision, he knows this is Jesus. But he's seen Jesus looking like this in the flesh. And had an opportunity to see the glory of God shining in the face and through the clothing of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so John, having this vision, there is no doubt about who this is. We also see the sword coming out of his mouth. That's like, oh, that is so freaky. Does any, I mean, is Jesus a sword swallower? No. No, it's symbolic. And what is it representative of? Well, we all know Hebrews 4.12, and it says this, The word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, none of us think that we can go take our Bible and go cut things with it, can we? None of us think that about this book. None of us think that about these words. We understand it to be a metaphor for what? It's power. It's effectiveness. The fact that it can do great damage and it can protect and it can conquer. That God's word has an authority that is indistinguishable from that of a well-carried and wielded sword. The word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Does that mean I can take my Bible and do surgery? No. No. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It is symbolic of the power of the word of God. And so in this vision, when we see a sword coming from the mouth of Jesus, it's that his word has power and authority and can do great work and great damage when he speaks. As we continue to read and to see this vision unfold, John sees Jesus And all of his power and all of his glory and all that he is. And how does he respond? When I saw him, I stood up and I walked over and I gave him my list of demands because he promised me blessing. No. When I encountered Jesus, when I saw him as he is, when I understood who whose presence I was in, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It's a big, big contrast to how many of us encounter the living God on the Lord's day, isn't it? John says, when I saw Jesus, I couldn't help but fall down dead. A marked contrast, like I said, to how many of us approach worship. How many of us approach the presence of our Savior on the Lord's day. And I don't want you to feel condemned, but I do want you to say, uh, as, as we read it, I want you to hear it. 
And I want you to obey it. For me, uh, just, just to, to maybe get to the end, a little spoiler alert, this is kind of, for me, the big obedience issue in this passage. Is that, first of all, I should seek to know Jesus fully. And second of all, when I encounter him, it should have some results that are significant. All and obedience. Dropping dead and saying, I'll do whatever you say. I saw him. I felt his feet like a dead man. Because here's the beauty of our Savior. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fret. Why? I am the first and the last and the living one. Interesting, we talked about three. Three is the number that represents God. You'll see threes all throughout Revelation. Three different descriptions of Jesus. The first, the last, the living one. The alpha, the omega, and the living one. Three words, three phrases used to describe him. And then three things used to describe living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold. I was dead. I'm alive. And now I hold. I was dead. And now I'm alive for and ever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I left my keys in my bag. If I pull out keys, do you think that, that those actually go to something like death and Hades? No, no. You can understand it is a picture for authority. The only people who have a key to my house are the people I want in there. They have power over my home to a certain extent. The, the people who can start my car are the people who have keys to my car, right? And so keys are a symbol of authority and dominion over. So when Jesus says, I used to be dead, but now I'm alive, and I'm not just alive for a little while, but I'm alive forever and ever. And guess what? I hold the power over death which is physical, and Hades, which is spiritual. There is no longer anything to be afraid of because I control your greatest enemy, death and hell. Therefore, (laughs) because I'm in charge, because I'm king, because I am and I always will be because I was dead and now I'm alive because I have power over death and hell because of that I want you to write down what I have to tell you and I want you to write down what you've seen what is and what will take place after this some scholars divide revelation up according to this metric what is or or what you have seen is what's going on right now What is, is chapters 2 and 3, in which John addresses each of the seven churches in order and reveals to them their standing before God and things that they need to repent of and correct, things that God, that Jesus is, is proud of them for, and then promises for their future. And then what is to come after this? A future of judgment or protection, depending on your perspective, that comes in Chapters 4 through 22. So John sees Jesus. He falls down like a dead man. And Jesus says, write what I'm going to show you. Now, how do we know that John was obedient? 
because we have it, right? If John had listened to what Jesus had to say, write what I have to show you, write all of these things, what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this, write this down. If John had not been obedient, we would not have it, would we? But he was. Now, to me, this kind of draws out something that genuine encounters with Jesus should result in awe and action. Right? When we really see Jesus for who he is, when we really understand who we are saying we follow, that there will be times where we will simply have no other answer but to fall on our face and say, you're amazing. And then when he calls us to do, instead of going, well, yeah, I mean, but you love me, so I don't need to obey that. We go, whatever you say, let me obey you, Lord Jesus. Now, Look, we can carry that, and and I could try and lay out what that application could mean in any number of circumstances, but I think you get what I'm saying, don't you? When you come to worship and you meet Jesus, which is something you should seek to do every time you come to worship, is to know his presence, to see him for who he is, to worship him, that your response should be one of standing or falling or kneeling or laying before him and saying, whatever you ask, I'll do. And when he lays something on your heart, when he speaks it to you through his word, that you respond not with maybe next week, but with genuinely following after him in obedience. Maybe imperfectly, and that's okay. But not putting off till next week what he's called you to do today. Genuine encounters with Jesus should always result in awe and action. Wow. I didn't even have to go two hours. This is amazing. As we wrap up, as we we, we kind of conclude today, it's important for us to understand some things about what we've read. N- number one, and, and, and this is going to be something I want to remind you of every week. Revelation is meant to be a blessing for the church. As we read this, you should not read it and become fearful. You should not read it and become apprehensive about the future. Instead, it is meant to reassure us that God is sovereign. That he is in power and authority over all that is to come. And that everyone who is in Christ Jesus will be victorious in the end. And we're going to see that over and over again over the next couple weeks as we look at the letters to the seven churches. And so Revelation is meant to be a blessing for the church if we read it and hear it and obey it. Here's the, the next thing. Just to really recognize is that Jesus reigns Not out there somewhere, not in heaven, in some distant sort of, but right here amongst us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ himself is right here in our midst right now. You don't have to go in some special place. We don't have to do some special ceremony. We don't have to burn anything, kill anything. Jesus is in our midst right now. Have you seen him today? <laughs> Have you experienced? Oh, Have you experienced him today? 
Because he's right here in our midst. Are you holding him at arm's length? Are you seeing his shining face and saying, well, that's not for me? And if you have seen him today and he's told you to do something, he's convicting you of something you need to do differently, a way that needs to change in your life today or tomorrow. You've seen him. Why are you not falling on your face and looking to obey him? This is for me too, trust me. This isn't condemnation. This is like, oh my gosh, the God of creation, my loving Savior whose face shines, who is perfect purity and holiness and welcomes me into his presence and I just treat it flippantly. Man, we, it should cause awe in us and action. Even if we obey imperfectly today, Maybe we can do better next time we see him. Right? And, and, and to increasingly grow in holiness. So, as we read Revelation, I hope you're blessed. I don't want you to just be treating this as a, another sermon series, but to say, what in this is for me to obey and to take home with me and to let Jesus work in and through me? And that as we meet him on a regular basis on Sunday mornings and in your worship time and your devotions at home, that you just find the, the freedom to fall before him in awe. And then to be obedient in response to who he is. If you don't know Jesus, if who we're talking about here is a stranger to you, I want to invite you today to come to a place where you acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. God's word tells us some things about ourselves. We were created by God. He loves us. He created us with a purpose to be in relationship with him and to walk in obedience to his ways. But first Adam and Eve and now all of us have rebelled against God. We have said we want to do things our own way and we've rejected him. And in doing that, we earn for ourselves death and wrath. And it's just and we deserve it. But God loved us so much that Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, gave up the rights and privileges of heaven and came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross as the substitute sacrifice for us rose again on the third day to prove it's all true and declares that whoever would believe on him as Lord and Savior can be restored to relationship with the Father and freed from slavery to sin and set free from the wrath of judgment that you rightly deserve and so if, if you've never met Jesus that way, you've never understood why he came, today is the day. I want to encourage you, you can come forward and we can talk and pray or you can grab somebody else and, and ask them to pray with you or even just here today, now, you can pray and talk to God and let him know that you understand that you're a sinner, that his love for you is amazing and that Jesus died in your place. And you want to trust this God, this Jesus, for your salvation. And today, that would be just the beginning point. Keep coming, keep learning, keep growing, 
keep being obedient. Your salvation is sure, but he desires even more than that for you, for you to grow and mature in his grace, this side of eternity as well. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to pray. So if you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes. Youngins, we're going to pray, so let's try and... uh, Let's try and get that right. Yeah, that right attitude. You guys are doing great. You don't have to put your hands together, but it helps us to focus, doesn't it? Helps us to focus and to pray. As we bow our heads and eyes closed, I just want to, if today you know that you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you, would you pray just a simple prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know that I have rebelled against you. And I deserve wrath and punishment. I deserve hell. Thank you for coming and living and dying in my place. I believe that you gave your life for my sin and rose again on the third day to prove that it's true. And so I trust you for my salvation today. And I also want to know you better and to walk with you daily. So help me to be in awe of you and to do what you say. For those of you who've trusted after Jesus, you can pray a prayer much like that, celebrating what he's already done, asking him, to reveal himself to you more regularly and to give you the strength to obey. Lord Jesus, may we see you. May we hear you. May we be in awe of you. And may we obey not to earn our salvation, but in celebration of your lordship and your sacrifice. Thank you for this word that we see in your scriptures. Help us to hear it and to obey. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing. If you'd like to talk, I'll be up front. Or you can grab somebody else and ask questions. But let's worship our Savior and try and once again see him. Because he's here amongst us.